Welcome to the About Skylar Falls podcast. This is episode two, part two. I decided to split it in half um, just so that people didn't completely fall asleep listening to me droning on and on. So I'm going to continue to answer the reader mail. Now, second question comes from Michael. Now, Michael is the author of Footprints, by the way, which is, uh, of course, the long-running web serial. It started the same year ASF did, but he's been writing it continually throughout the 15 years, so it's a much more impressive uh, history. And he's about to hit his 700th episode. Wow. So, um, if you haven't read Footprints, I definitely encourage everybody to go check it out. Um, It's more focused on a single family, and it's um, more of an homage to daytime soaps, and it's just a very warm and just beautifully written serial, so do check it out. Um, I think fans of ASF will like it. Anyway, now his question was, I read a comment in your forum about how you had to change some aspect of Operation Mousetrap because this is happening in 2012 instead of 2003. What was that? Was it the cell phone? I can't figure it out. I'd love to know that as a fan. Thank you, Michael. Well, first off, I think Michael misread my response in the forum a little bit, because what I was talking about was actually not Operation Mousetrap. I did mention that I had to change a storyline, because it was happening at the time in 2012, now it's happening in 2013, um, instead of 2003 or 2002, Um, but it wasn't Operation Mousetrap. Although I will say, regarding the cell phone thing, that no, if I had been writing this when it should have taken place, which would have been a year after, say, the fourth season started, so that would be 2002, um, I don't think I would have come up, come up with this cell phone idea, because cell phones were, um, I mean, they were certainly in existence and popular, but I didn't even have one at the time. Um, I don't think I got one until 2005, and... You know, to be honest, I'm really an embarrassing Luddite when it comes to cell phones. They intimidate me. I don't know why. I am perfectly fine with computers, and I understand technology and all that, but for whatever reason, the whole phone-tablet thing just... I don't know, it's like beyond my pay grade or something. I think I reached a point when I hit 45... And something in my mind said, okay, I have learned all the technology I'm going to learn. That's it. Everything else is just too much for me to handle. So (laughs) I hope that's not true, but it just feels that way. Anyway, like right now I have a phone um, and it's not quite like a dumb phone, uh, but it's certainly not a smartphone. Let's give it an IQ of about 115, say, or 120. So it's, um, you know, it's not stupid, but it's not going to the Ivy Leagues anytime soon. <laughs> so anyway, the point is that I just would not have come up with the idea of cell phones being that integral to the story. And to be even more honest, I didn't come up with the idea of cell phones being important to the story until the very day I was writing the episode. That's a perfect example of a story that was almost completely improvised, or I should say the resolution of the story that was almost completely improvised. I knew the big plot points that were going to happen. Obviously, I knew that Nick was going to kill Hugh. I knew that Johnny was going to set it up so that Ross was almost going to be murdered by either... At the time, it was going to be Dean, but I I switched it to Lou. Um, And then Johnny would kill Lou and therefore manage to get Ross to let him out of the whole um, undercover operation. 
and I knew that the cops were not going to be involved. You know, somehow they were going to get distracted in some way. But I really didn't know how until until the days I was writing that episode, which, you know, I think is partly the reason why I put it off so much, um, why I procrastinate a lot of the fourth season was because I had these plot beats that I really wasn't certain how they were going to work. And also because there was a lot of adventure and action, and that's not my natural genre. So honestly, the whole cell phone thing was just last minute brainstorming. And I'm reluctant to admit all this because I got so many compliments on the whole Operation Mousetrap thing and saying, everyone said, wow, this was so intricately plotted and, you know, everything fell together and da da da. And I soaked up all of the praise shamelessly, despite the fact that I really didn't deserve any of it. Um, or maybe subconsciously the plans were there and I just had to get it out on paper for me to realize what they were. Let's just say that. Okay. Anyway, so to answer your question, the story that I was talking about um, in the forum that is now going to require a lot of rethinking because it's now 2013 instead of 2003 or 2002 or whatever this is not going to be a very satisfactory answer, but the truth is I can't tell you <laughs> um, because the plot hasn't happened yet. The tendrils of this plot have already begun, uh, or I should say the seeds of the plot. Um, they've already been mentioned, you know, it's it's already part of the canvas, things that have been happening, but the resolution of it is the issue. And I can't really be specific in any way, but I can give you an explanation in hypotheticals. Okay. The issue is that um, the storyline involves a certain real-life event that occurred in a year that everybody knows. So, let's take an example. Let's say the Iran hostage crisis, which, for you young folks out there, um, took place in 1979 through 1980. Okay, so, now let's say the person involved in that storyline were Tristan. Tristan, at the start of ASF, was 30 years old. Um, that's back in 1997. And uh, that meant he was born in 1967, a year younger than I was. It's just now embarrassing because he's now almost 15 years younger. But um, so if he were born in 1967, he would have been 12 or 13 at the time of the Iran hostage crisis. So it would have been something that he would remember and it was part of his, you know, consciousness and if someone, let's say someone he loved was, had been taken hostage he would know about it and it would be part of his history. But, the problem is that, okay, Tristan was 30 in 1997 only two years have passed in the four seasons of ASF which means now in 2013 or 2012 Tristan is now 32, so his birth date has now been shifted to around, like, 1981, um, or 1980, and therefore he is no longer even in existence at the time of the Iran hostage crisis. So there goes his involvement in whatever the plot was that involves that crisis. So that is the problem, that my characters are way younger than they should be, um, or they're just too young to have experienced the incident that is involved in this plot, 
and it's because of the ridiculous amount of time that it's taken me to tell the story. When I first conceived of this plot, it was 1999, I believe. <laughs> um, so it would have, even then, you know, it would have made sense at that point for the characters to have experienced this this event. But I had no idea that it was going to take me this long to write the fourth season. So I've basically aged these characters, you know, too slowly, and um, now that just makes no sense. So I'm screwed, pretty much. <laughs> and um, there are two options for me now as a writer. I would either just give up the idea of it being a real-life incident and make, create a fake incident so I can still involve the certain characters, and it's not Tristan, um, who are involved in the storyline. Or I forget the idea of this plot entirely, or I involve a different set of characters entirely. Well, a, a, you know, a different writer would probably go with faking the incident, you know, creating a, a similar but fake incident. But I'm so anal retentive when it comes to history and um, reality and believability that I just, and I love this plot so much, I just don't want to give it up. You know, I'm that stubborn. Usually I'm really more flexible, but in this case, I'm not. So I'm going with the idea that it's going to be a different set of characters involved that's that's the issue that I was talking about in the forum, and um, it's pretty unique to ASF, I think, because of the ridiculous non-real time and the, the stasis bubble that the characters are in, and so on and so forth. So, there you are. That is the answer. I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much for asking it. God, all of my weaknesses of, as a writer are being exposed in this episode. Finally, um, there's a completely different question. Yay! Andy is the uh, person who wrote me. Andy is the writer of The Blackthorns, um, a serial that was around from 2005 through 2010. He's also the author of Storm Lake, which premiered last summer of 2012 and then abruptly ended <laughs> at the end of 2012 because Andy decided that um, instead of being a web serial, he would turn it into a novel. I should mention, just to dig at him, um, that I really, really enjoyed Storm Lake. It was a serial that felt very similar to ASF, and I'm not saying that like a serial has to be like ASF for me to like it. Um, for example, Footprints, which I admire greatly and very much enjoy, is not very much like ASF, um, except that I think it's very well planned out. Um, but mood-wise and storyline-wise, it's very different. Um, but nevertheless, it's always nice to see something that's kind of up your alley. Um, and Stormlight was. It was it took place in upstate New York. It involved a lot of mystery. It involved an entire community of people. Um, so it was just had a lot of atmosphere, and I was just really into it. And then he just yanked it from the web. Damn it! And <laughs> the funny thing is, this also happened to another series that was like ASF in many ways. Um, Independence Day, which was written by uh, Bex. Spencer Aaron. Uh, the plot involved a murder, um, and it involved a whole community, and again, this was sort of a moody, atmospheric piece. This was also a period piece that took place in 1966. So I was getting into that, and then, again, she took it from the web and made it into a series of novels. So this is not unusual for me. Um, if I like a TV show, the odds are pretty good that it's going to be cancelled. If I 
and this is especially true if I like either a fictional character or a TV actor, um, they're going to be fired or the character is going to be killed off. This happened about 20 times, no lie to me, and I should know better by now than to get attached to anything because I am a cloud of doom for anything that I like. But I do want to say one thing, and it's a promise to you guys, the readers out there. I do have some kind of plans to novelize ASF, um, either as a prequel or, you know, in an entirely different format. But whatever I do with that idea, ASF is going to remain on the web. I am not taking it away from you guys. I completely understand why Bex and Andy did that. One of the reasons that writers do that is that Amazon's Kindle program, or at least Amazon Prime for Kindle, uh, they require you to be exclusive with them. So if you publish your novel and you want it to be on Amazon Prime, then you have to get rid of all other copies of um, that are public of your story. So many writers, therefore, have to take down their stuff if it's online um, or if it's being published by somebody else. So, and because Amazon is such a huge seller and you know, most authors want to be involved with them, especially with Amazon Prime, because it's a really good highlight for your novel. Um, a lot of writers will join that program, and so therefore they have to follow the rules. Despite that, I still say that um, ASF will always be available on the web, as long as I can still pay for the <laughs> the web hosting. Um, I just have no intention to take it down. It's too frustrating for me. I've, I've lost other web serials that I used to love very much, uh, such as one called A Lovely Light, Dead Kelly, which is one of the most influential web serials in ASF's uh, planning, and then there was another one, oh gosh, I don't remember what it was called, but anyway, a lot of them have disappeared, so I don't want that to happen to ASF. So that is the Huge preamble to Andy's question, which has nothing to do with this. So, Andy asks, are there any characters or events that you've based yourself, that you've based on yourself or people you know? Well, first of all, there are bits of me in every character of ASF. Um, I find it much easier to empathize with a character if, you know, if they have some trait that I recognize in myself, you know, that might make me a, a poor writer. I think a better writer would be able to create characters that are completely different from themselves, but I like to include a little something that I understand at my core so that I can really appreciate this character and empathize with them. The only character that I don't do that with is Danielle. <laughs> I will not cop to having anything in common with the girl. So what characters are most me-ish? There aren't any self-inserts. I really don't think so. But there are characters that have a lot of me in them. Um, Martina being a prime example. You know, she's Jewish, she's very liberal, um, and she's passionate about justice. Um, and she's got dark hair. So <laughs> that's a lot of me right there. Um, another one is Rena, certainly. She and I share a certain black and white sort of thinking, um, ethics-wise, and it's not related to any religion or any like professional obligations or anything like that, but we believe what we believe, and unfortunately, not an attractive quality, but we also think that people who don't believe the way we do are just wrong, and there's something wrong with them. <laughs> and um, this is something that I've really worked on all my life, um, not always successfully, and it's obviously something that Rena has been shown to uh, 
to cause problems for Rena. Um, you know, she's worked on her judgmentalness, but she still basically holds very fast to her beliefs, and she just doesn't comprehend people who don't agree with them. Um, other characters are Clark, Jim, and Tristan. All of them share my somewhat mordant sense of humor. Tristan, in particular, can be kind of bitter and pessimistic, and that's definitely part of my makeup. Um, oh, then there's Julie and Jason. Julie, of course, is where I pour all of my classical music love um, and my history of being a musician into her background. And her geekiness, of course, her love of reading. Uh, but the thing about Julie is she, unlike me, she's very confident in being a quote-unquote nonconformist. You know, she's not obnoxiously, you know, making a big deal out of the fact that she's not like the other kids her age. But, you know, because that's just as obnoxious as being a conformist but um she just likes what she likes and she's happy to read a book in the cafeteria even if the other kids think she's weirdo and um you know some of that comes from my niece actually I admire that so much in my young niece she's gonna be 17 soon so she's not all that young anymore well but um she has my niece has loves classical music she likes old classic movies her favorite actress was Cat. Catherine Hepburn, and she doesn't have a problem with expressing these views in public, you know, among her friends, and I know, it's just, I would never have had that kind of confidence at her age, so I admire that greatly, and so that, a lot of that is in Julie. Jason, on the other hand, is more like me, in that he is very aware that he's not like the other kids, and he doesn't like that fact, but he can't feel like, he feels like he can't change. Um, also, he has my, uh, what my love of computers and um, alternate reality games and computer games and all that kind of geeky stuff. So those two characters are a lot like me. But the character probably most like me um, is the one I wish was least like me <laughs> or that I was least like, uh, and that would be Beth. Okay, some biographical information that I may or may not regret. Um, she... <laughs> A lot of people know this from the Epiguide, so it's not really that big a surprise, and I think a lot of people who are my readers know this, but um, I've struggled with depression all my life. It, um, it's something clinical. It's not the result of any one incident. Um, I've had a few tragedies in my life, but I was depressed as a kid before any of them happened, so it's just who I am, and that is something I struggle with constantly. And like Beth, I have also a lot of anxiety. And um, as a matter of fact, over the last six years, I've sort of developed a panic disorder kind of thing, which is, you know, just the whipped cream on the Sunday of my wonderful mental illness problems. But um, so Beth, of course, I don't have dissociative identity disorder. That is one uh, burden I do not carry, thank goodness. But a lot of the issues that Beth shows... Um, her feelings of self-worth or lack thereof and her worries that she's never going to be normal and a lot of that is familiar stuff for me I'll put it that way also perhaps more importantly the dynamic between her and her sibling um, Clark is very much taken from my own interactions with my sisters because Clark he loves Beth he wants to protect her he takes care of her as much as he can, but he also feels frustrated, understandably, at, um, well, first of all, he doesn't know the extent of her illness, so, you know, some of this is not fair, that he thinks she's malingering in some way, 
Um, that part is not true life. <laughs> but um, otherwise, you know, his frustration at being responsible for her or feeling responsible for her and um, some of his resentment that he has his own problems and yet sometimes he has to still take care of a sister. Um, you know, I appreciate that sometimes... I'm sure my sisters feel that way. They wouldn't tell me that, but I know that they do. And I've actually been in that position myself with my sisters in some instances. So, um, you know, sometimes I've been the caretaker and they've been the more needy person. Um, and I, of course, also understand Beth's feelings of, you know, being a burden on her family and chafing at the overprotectiveness of the relative who's just trying to help. But you know, also feeling that you're doing what you can and the other person is not necessarily appreciating just how hard doing things that seem completely normal to others, you know, just getting up and going to work or, you know, taking care of yourself, you know, things that are part of everyday life can sometimes just be overwhelming to someone who is mentally ill. So, um, anyway, all of those interactions are very true to life and they mean a lot to me and I'm also very pleased that um, I've received a lot of positive feedback for those scenes. So, so yeah, so those are the characters that are most based like me. And, like, it's all negative stuff. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, all right, the classical musical stuff, that's good stuff. But, um, okay, so those are the ones based on me. Then, based on other people, there actually aren't that many. You know, I mentioned Julie and my niece. You know, that's something that I've sort of noticed after the fact, rather than specifically basing it on her mainly because Julie was conceived when my niece was only one years old so <laughs> obviously um somehow they've caught up in age uh but the character who's most directly based on someone else is Clark you know even though I just said that a lot of him is in me but really when I was creating Clark or when Casey and I were creating Clark um I invested him with a lot of the personality or my memories of my oldest sister's best friend, Danny. Danny was a part of our lives, you know, back when I was a really, really young kid. My oldest sister is nine years older than I am. And, um, so, he, and he was her age. So, I just remember Danny as being, um, he was vibrant and funny and intelligent and super talented. He was a pianist. Um, and just an amazingly loyal and loving friend. And to us, to, to me and my middle sister, um, he was almost like a brother figure. He was just often at the house, and we felt very comfortable with him. And we kind of had crushes on him because I, one other thing about him is that he was gorgeous. Um, you know, I described Clark as having this thick lion's head, of, lion's mane of hair, and, you know, really arresting eyes, and that's very true of Danny. I, as a matter of fact, I've never been happy with the pictorial representations I've used for Clark, um, because even when I used, you know, like a, a extremely attractive actor, uh, who was it, Thorsten Kay, I think it was, in the first seasons of ASF, when I was using soap actors and regular actors to depict characters, um, you know, nothing against Thorsten Kay, who um, is a good-looking guy, but Danny was way better looking as far as I'm concerned. Um, just gorgeous brown eyes and soulful, you know, just wonderful guy. Um, unfortunately, to put it mildly, um, Danny died in 1989 or, or 1990. I'm not sure which year, but at very ridiculously young age, um, 30, 
32 or 33, he must have been. And um, so when ASF, you know, came into existence and I was creating a character like Clark, I just knew that I wanted him to be like Danny. It was just my way of remembering him and just remembering the kind of friendship that he and my sister had. And So that is the biggest homage to someone. Another is Carlo. Carlo is, and this is something that only just occurred to me after I read Andy's question, Carlo is very much uh, reminiscent of the father of my best friend from college. Uh, his name was Al, and he was an Italian widower who was just so loving and had a bigger-than-life personality. Uh, he cooked really well, although that wasn't his profession, unlike Carlo. He was actually a, um, a trainer for horse racing, um, harness racing, and um, very well-respected, as a matter of fact. But he also cooked a mean, mean blueberry pie. I've never had a blueberry pie that I enjoyed before, but this one awesome. I don't even like blueberries, but I don't know what he did with his pie, but it was incredible. So, um, but the thing is, he was just so sweet, you know, despite he's a big guy and, like I said, traditional Italian father, but so sensitive and kind and just really, he made me feel one of the family, even though I only met him three or four times, um, unfortunately, but he just knew, you know, how much I cared for his, his daughter, who like Julie, was much younger than her other siblings, so that, that too is kind of similar. But anyway, so that's Carlo. And finally, and the most difficult one to mention is Charles. Charles, it's not so much that Charles is based on my father, because that's really not true. If you took Charles and my father in a room, I don't think they get along, um, and not because they're similar, but because my father is not or I should say was, not cold, he wasn't um, a control freak, he wasn't, you know, kind of a snob, um, you know, that was none of my father's issues. But what is taken from real life is the whole dynamic between Charles and Chelsea and Roberta, his ex-wife, and their lost son, and Cynthia. This is all like a funhouse mirror version of my own history, uh, my own family history, uh, with big differences. You know, my father did not divorce my mother. They were married for 36 years and, you know, loved each other and um, until my mom died. And um, my brother died uh, before I was born, actually. And, um, you know, my mother was not... <laughs> stuck in a mental institution she didn't have any huge kind of breakdown or anything like that but the things that are similar are that I have explored in the storyline are the different ways that parents will grieve or, or that people grieve when they lose someone so unbelievably important to them and how sometimes that clashes and their outlooks on life will be so different that um it causes conflicts between them and their existing children. Like, Chelsea sided with her mother, and she couldn't really comprehend Charles's method of grief at all. As a matter of fact, she doesn't even think that Charles did grieve for um, their lost baby. And, uh, you know, that isn't true. And honestly, my view of... My, you can pretty much track my relationship with my father by looking at the Chel Charles and Chelsea relationship and 
how empathetic I am as a writer toward Charles, or I should say sympathetic. Um, you don't start seeing Charles in a more positive light until the third and fourth season, which again, it was like 2000, 2001. Um, and that's really a direct result of my father's changing personality as he grew older um, in the last years of his life. I grew ill in 1999, or my depression worsened very much, and my father, who had always been a very traditional 1950s, 1960s, 70s uh, father, had always been, um, not as remote as Charles, but, you know, he took kind of a hands-off view, and even, even after my mother died, he didn't really, you know, bridge the gap, you know, he wasn't both mother and father to us, um, and that was just part of who he was and the tradition of the way men were raised to be in those days. But once I got sick, and he was like 77, so again, the idea of not being able to teach old dogs new tricks does not apply here. He just stepped up to the plate. He suddenly took a much greater interest in my life, and he really tried to help me, and I was suddenly able to go out to dinner with him, and... Um, you know, have coffee with him, and see, this was always an issue between him and his girlfriend. His girlfriend did not like my father seeing his kids separately from her. We always had to be with the two of them, um, and that caused some strain, but, because uh, we weren't, we didn't feel comfortable talking about my mom or the past in front of my father's girlfriend, because it felt rude, you know, like we were omitting her, or, or trying to make her jealous, or something like that, it just felt wrong, so as a result, we weren't really ever able to have any kind of nostalgic conversations with our father, we really wanted that, um, but anyway, when I got sick, I started being able to have these conversations with him, and I learned so much more about him, and how he felt about the loss of my brother, and the loss of my mother, and, um, I just empathized with him so much more. I understood him so much better. And as a result, Charles's character has been shown far more sympathetically. And I think it's only after that time where I started to show scenes between him and Chelsea from Charles's point of view, instead of showing them from Chelsea's point of view. And um, that's part of why I wanted to get Charles involved in the storyline earlier in the uh, Play City kidnapping earlier. That's why one of the reasons to go back to the earliest question, um, why it was so much of a relief when Jem went to Charles for the money. Um, this brought Charles into the storyline way earlier than he was originally planned. He was originally just going to be um, aware of the kidnapping once Chelsea was hurt in the explosion after the fact. Now he was part of the kidnapping. I mean, he was there worried about his daughter, and we saw him, uh, you know, some flashbacks of their of Charles, Chelsea's childhood. And this, I think, greatly developed Charles as a character. And honestly, the sympathy that I have for him now um, is largely the sympathy that I have for my father, or that I had for my father. My pop died. 10 years ago this month as I'm recording this. So the whole Charles, Roberta, Chelsea, Cynthia storyline is the closest to autobiographical plot that I have included in ASF. I've told my therapists often that if you want to understand my psyche, they should just read ASF. <laughs> because there's really a lot of me in there. But um, anyway, so that 
I hope answers your question. And um, Andy, thank you very much. I hope it doesn't say too much bad about me that um, I take so much from real life. So that's all for this time. Thank you very much for all of your questions. Um, thanks to Sarah, Michael, and Andy. And also thanks to our survey winners, Joseph, Patrice, and Dana. And of course, to everybody who responded to the survey. And um, those of you whose questions have not yet been answered, they will be answered next time. Thanks again, and I will speak to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.